Welcome to the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kurnikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review, leaving a five-star rating, and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. Tonight we're going to talk about the Old Testament and we're going to focus on the Old Testament as not so much the Old Testament as um, as its teachings or whatnot, although we will dig into a little bit of the teachings, but I want us to get a really good overview of the Old Testament as background knowledge for the, the uh, New Testament. So, like I said, this will be a flyby overview. We're going to go quickly by. We're not going to look at, at, at a whole lot of, lot of individual things. So let's look at the chronology. The Old Testament is telling us the history of the Jewish peoples. Uh, The book of Genesis is Genesis because it tells us the background history of the Jews. So all of of Genesis takes place before the word Jew would have appeared in anybody's uh, vocabulary. In fact, the word Jew comes from Judah, the fourth son of, of Israel, of the fourth son of Jacob. The reason Jew has become, throughout history, become the catch-all term for all of the Jewish peoples was because, and we will get to this in in, in a few minutes, the most powerful of the Jewish kingdoms was Judah. So anybody who was part of that people group was considered to be uh, a Jewish person from the tribe of Judah, from the nation of Judah. Uh, There's another term you might hear a lot, Hebrew. Hebrew... We actually don't know where that term comes from, but the best guess is that one of Abraham's forebears, if I remember right, his great-great-great-grandfather was by the name of Eber. So that's probably where the term Hebrew comes from. But that's opposite of Jew. Of Jew. So whereas Judah covers a bigger group than actual Judans, the, he, the term Hebrew, since it's Abraham's grandfather or great-grandfather, should be a much bigger group. But for whatever reason, that term has, has focused in just on the people we call Jews, or the the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, so the first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They are collectively known as the Torah. Now, traditionally, the books have been known to be written by Moses. But as we'll see in the New Testament, where a lot of times an author's name will be attached. So Paul, the first word of all of Paul's letters is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, etc., 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 all the five books of the Torah are actually anonymous. There is no stated author. 
And there's actually no sentence there that really implies that Moses was the author of this particular sentence. In fact, a lot of times Moses is quoted in the third person. And then Moses said, quotation mark, and then what he said. Um, I'm not saying Moses didn't write the, the Torah. I'm just saying that don't cry liberal whenever you hear somebody say Moses probably didn't write it. In fact, Moses could not have written the last paragraph of Deuteronomy. Does anybody want to know why? Why Moses could not have written the last paragraph of Deuteronomy? Because he already did? Yeah, because it's about his death and burial by God on top of a mountain. I guess in theory God could have told him, hey, write this paragraph before you go up the mountain. And then he would have been like, maybe I don't want to go up that mountain after all. Uh, and also, Genesis 1-11 through 11 has all the har- hallmarks of oral history of the Jews that was compiled perhaps later. Than, so, so the story of from Abraham through Joseph might be an older story, even though Genesis 1-11 through 11 covers older events. Uh, probably the best evidence for this is that from Abraham until the end of Deuteronomy, ex, or, or, uh, Egypt is the big bad in, in the story. They're, they're the ever-present power that's either, in Exodus obviously, they're, they're right over you and charge you or slaves to them. But in Egypt, they're the looming, or in, in, in Genesis, they're the looming threat. And then in uh, number Leviticus, the second half of Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're still the the you know the, the boogeyman you tell your kids about. Oh, we went to Egypt. You know, they, we were slaves in Egypt. But in Genesis one through eleven, it really feels more like the, that boogeyman is out east in the the plains of Babel or Babylon. Uh, which would line more up with later histories. Because, and we'll talk about the exile, eventually the Jewish relationship with Egypt will cool down greatly. In fact, several times in the later Old Testament, it seems like there were, were attempts to make alliances between the either the northern tribe of Israel or the southern tribe of Judah with Egypt. In fact, one of Solomon's wives was the daughter of Pharaoh. As you get deeper into the Old Testament, it's actually the the Assyrians, which is like northern Iraq. So don't confuse Syria with Assyria, because there's actually a country called Syria in the Old Testament. That would have been right around here, right around Damascus. All of this territory up here, the, the a stretch of Iraq and most of Syria, that would have been called Assyria. It was centered around the, the ancient city of Ashur or Asheria. So A-S-S-H-U-R. But in time, the central city of Assyria, even though Ashur continued to exist, the central city became Nineveh. Nineveh, for all intents and purposes, became the capital of Assyria. And Nineveh is located, I want to say, right about here, in the, uh, up, uh, in the upper corner of Iraq, uh, around the modern city of Mosul. So, that was the first big bad of the east, but then it became Babylon. So 50 miles south of, of Baghdad, around, somewhere around here, was the city of Babylon. And, and we'll get to this uh, as, as we discuss the history, but Babylon then becomes the big bad. They crush Assyria, and they're the ones that take the southern tribe of Judah into exile. And then, uh, in, at the 
end of Daniel, it's Persia. And Persia, for all intents and purposes, is Iran. From the highlands up here all the way down this mountain range here is Persia. And the Medes were in there somewhere too. I think the Medes were more up here. And the Medo-Persian Empire, then they crushed Babylon. Is everybody thoroughly confused yet? We're just we're covering a lot of history and I'm really getting ahead of myself. But I think it's perfectly possible and it's a perfectly conservative position to say that Genesis 1-11 through 11 was assembled probably at a later time, probably around Ezra's time. That does not mean that they made it up. It means that, it, that the earliest part of Genesis, the part that talks about the earliest history, was probably oral history. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. Uh, a lot of ancient history started as oral history and then became written history. In fact, the Jews become one of the outliers in the ancient world because it seems like a lot of their early scriptures became written very early. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then later Deuteronomy. But particularly those three in the middle, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, were, it is possible that they were written during the lifetime of Moses. In fact, traditionally we believe Moses wrote a, a big portion of that. That's, that's rare com- compared to a lot of other ancient cultures where their religious texts aren't written right then, right, right at that time. They're, they would be compiled later. Now I do want to mention there, there's so much more I could say about the Torah. In fact, it, 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 we could make the whole class just about the first five books of the, of the, of the Old Testament. Um, I want to throw in this. Where do you guys think Job fits chronologically? Early. Early. It, it, I would say yes. A lot of times you'll hear people say really early, like like maybe even during the Genesis 1 through 11, like super early. I think that's probably too early. My best guess is that the best place to put Job, if you want to read the story as it happens, is between Genesis and Exodus. Now, the, the actual, whoever wrote down, remember what I just said about oral history? Whatever Job was, it probably started as oral history. The copy of Job we have was written down probably only a few centuries before Christ. But it tells a story that happens thousands of years before. Some of the hallmarks of the book of Job are that there are no Jewish characters in the narrative. There are no Jews in the book of Job. That's why a lot of preachers say, well, it's, it's before Abraham. But there's a problem. Let's, if you got your Bible, let's open to Job 2, verse 11. Job 2, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had came, come upon him, they came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. So we see several names there, and two of those names are Bildad the Shuhite and Eliphaz the Temanite. Well, we actually have references, possibly not to these individuals, but we have references from Genesis that will probably highlight this. So we're going to go to Genesis 25. Most people forget 
that Abraham, Abraham spent most of his life without any children. It, it's a big theme in his life. He has his first child when he's in his 70s. His second child when he's in his 90s. And then when his wife dies, he marries uh, a young woman named Keturah. And apparently his seed was just fine because he went on to have a lot of kids in his hundreds. Genesis chapter 25. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. So six children. So he had eight children in total. Not bad for a guy whose first kid came in his 70s. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim and Letushim and Lemuim. The sons of Midian were Ephah and Epher and Hanoach and Abida and Eldah. All these were the sons of Keturah. So notice one of the sons mentioned was Shua. But I'm not actually... Oh yeah, it's the last son of Abraham. It is almost certain that Shua, the last son of Abraham, is the ancestor of Bildad the Shuite. The One of the uh, Job's other friends can be found in Genesis 36. Not the person in, uh, specifically, but almost certainly one of his ancestors. So in Genesis 36, we see... Genesis 36 is an infamous chapter in Genesis. It is the, quote-unquote, the list of dukes, if you have the good old King James English. The uh, dukes of Edom. And it just breaks the story of Genesis. You're going along, you're telling a pretty good family story of Genesis, and then right in the middle... Now we're going to give you a whole bunch of names of people that have nothing to do with Israel and have nothing to do with the story, but here we go. And in the middle of this list of names, we see here, these are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Adah. Raul, the son of Esau's wife, Basimoth. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, and Gatam, and Kenaz. So right there, we have a character in Job called Eliphaz the Temanite, which is probably not the exact person, because we see right, right there, we see Eliphaz was the son of Esau's wife, Adah. Probably not the same person, but almost certainly was a great-great-grandfather or great-great-great-great-grandfather. Because one of Eliphaz's, Eliphaz's sons is Teman. Eliphaz the Temanite. Therefore, since we can trace not one but two characters in the book of Job, a book that actually doesn't have a lot of people in it, uh, we can trace two of them to people who are introduced in Genesis. Anybody who says Job comes before Genesis, that's probably not true. However, we're talking about uh, an area somewhere around... Where's my map? The book of Job probably happens in the, the Rift Valley, somewhere around the Dead Sea or the Sea of Galilee, somewhere in this area. Traditionally, it's believed Job was an Edomite. So Edom would be the stretch here in western Jordan. So we're talking basically right here, right, right there along Jewish lands. And the idea that you would have a book in a Jewish Bible that takes place in Jewish lands that has no Jews in it cries out for an explanation. And I think the explanation is clear. The Jews are in Egypt. They're, Jacob has taken his family into Egypt and they are there either in the early stages as guests or in the later stages as slaves. 
So I don't think the Jews have made their way back to Israel yet. So I think that's the best place to put Job, right between Genesis and Exodus. Okay, so back to our chronology. Genesis covers the time. Genesis 1 through 11 is what one of my professors in seminary called proto-history. Meaning, it's, it's all true, we can accept it, but the point of Genesis 1 through 11 is not to give a blow-by-blow account of history in precise detail. The point of Genesis 1 through 11 is to cover lots of time in a very short amount of time. It's like when you watch a, a movie that has a montage sequence. Uh, maybe it's, it's a comedy and it's the point where everybody decides to work together to get the car wash up and running. And you, so you have the scene where they're you know, rebuilding the car wash and somebody's scrubbing the ground and somebody else is taping the hoses or whatever you need to do. And so they have some kind of rock song playing in the background while everybody works. It's a montage sequence. You are to understand that even though what you just watched was only 20 seconds, that it actually covered several days of good hard work. It's a montage sequence. That's basically what Genesis 1 through 11 is. It's a montage sequence that, that gives you the highlights of prehistory. Uh, so after Genesis 1 through 11, then you get to the story of Abraham. And then from Abraham, it follows his, his family. Uh, through his son Isaac, and then through Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the chosen one. And then, at that point, you get the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And I won't list all 12 because I haven't memorized them. But you got uh, Reuben and Judah and Levi and Joseph and Benjamin and others. Uh, Judah becomes important eventually because his tribe becomes the strongest tribe. Levi is important because his tribe is the most religiously significant tribe. From Levi comes all of the priests. Reuben is significant because he's the firstborn. Joseph and Benjamin are significant because they are the sons of Jacob's favorite wife. Jacob had four wives, or two wives and two concubines. But four, four women bared, bore his, him sons. And so as you leave Genesis, you have the 12 tribes at, I would say they, they were peaceful, is a good term for it. I wouldn't say it was a, a very healthy, loving family, but they're, they're not at open warfare. And as between Genesis and Exodus, the entire Jewish population in Genesis goes from a large family to an actual people group. And their experience in captivity coalesces them into a, a unified people group, the, tri- the 12 tribes of Israel. Now you see throughout Exodus and, and the following books that people still had their tribal identities. So each tribe had its leaders and its leadership structure. When Moses sent the spies into the land, there were one from each tribe. Maybe they didn't quite trust each other. So there were probably cultural differences between the tribe, but collectively they were the 12 tribes of Israel. They were Israel. Leviticus, not a whole lot happens in Leviticus. About the only narrative thing that happens in Leviticus is that Aaron's two oldest sons decide they're going to write their own rules about how to do religious ritual and God strikes them dead. Right in the middle of the book. But besides that, the rest of Leviticus is literally a list of laws, of various kinds of laws. Numbers, while it still has a lot of laws, it picks up back on the narrative. Although, as you can tell by the name, there's also a lot of lists in the book of Numbers. Now, chronologically, from the point 
Egypt, or by the from the point Israel leaves Egypt until halfway through the book of Numbers, all that's about two years. And then, another montage sequence, I guess, you're to understand that Israel wanders around the... the after, after the... the situation with the spies where most of the spies are like, oh no, the the land that we call Israel, oh no, the land is full of giants and we're going to get crushed, let's go back. And then only Caleb and Joshua say, no, let's let's take the land. And then most of the people follow the, the weak spies and so God decides to punish the people by saying, okay, if you guys don't want to go into the land, you won't go into the land. Your children will go into the land. So of the, of the generation old enough to be adults when they left Egypt, only Caleb and Joshua will step foot into the promised land. Everyone else will die as they wander around the wilderness. This area right here, the Sinai Peninsula. As Numbers comes to an end, though, God starts getting the people on the move. But instead of going straight for the promised land, for whatever reason, God wants them to take the long way. So they, they, they wrap around the promised land this way, and they have to fight with a lot of their cousin tribes, like the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites. And eventually they get up here, and then right here on the edge of the, uh, of the Jordan River, Moses gives his final sermon, and that's the book of Deuteronomy. So the book of Deuteronomy basically is Moses' last-minute recounting of their history and a recounting of their most important laws and telling the people to get ready to go into the land. And Moses establishes Joshua, what God, through Moses, establishes Joshua as the, as the new leader. And then Moses dies. God allows him to go up on the mountain to see the promised land, but he does not allow Moses to go into the promised land. So then the book of Joshua picks up with him taking political control and the, and the people go into the land. And then the book of Joshua tells of a series of military uh, endeavors, not all of them victories, but a series of military endeavors as the Jewish people try to take over the promised land. They are never fully successful. I think I mentioned this in one of the, our earlier lectures, that Israel remains one of the more multicultural lands throughout its existence, even today. Jews and Palestinians live side by side in a not healthy relationship. Now, individual Jews, individual Israeli, Israeli Jews, and individual Palestinians who may or may not have Israeli citizenship, individuals might, might get along just fine. But as, as, a, as a general rule, they don't get along very well. It, it's, it's still not a very healthy uh, relationship in that region. Part of it is because of its multicultural nature. Now, to be clear, I'm a big fan of multiculturalism. My marriage is a multicultural marriage. I believe one of America's greatest strengths is that we don't depend on the talents and mores and, and art of just one people group, but we are a collection of hundreds of different people groups. We have more languages, foods, entertainment options than any place on earth. It's part of what makes our country so strong. Multiculturalism can also be a hotbed for strife and, and, uh, and friction as well. And Israel, unfortunately, has, has been that throughout most of its several thousands of years of existence.
Okay, so Joshua and Judges bridge the gap between Exodus, the book of Exodus, and King Saul. And we'll get to Saul in a minute. Uh, Judges, we talked about Joshua. Joshua basically is the military campaigns of Joshua as the, the Jews take over enough of the land that they become masters of the promised land. And then Judges can be divided into two parts. Judges 1 through 16 is about, lo and behold, the judges. So what is a judge? There is no real job description. Each one of the judges we see from Judges 1 through 16 are different. They, First of all, no one judge is in command of all of the tribes of Israel. No one jo- judge ever has, has universal command. And some of them only command really just one or two tribes. More often than not, a judge will only reign as judge for a limited amount of time when they're needed. Interestingly enough, the exception seems to be Deborah, a female. Deborah seems to be the closest thing the book of Judges has to a, an actual competent administrator. Someone who actually makes decisions, runs a government, uh, assigns generals, and goes and wins battles. The, and then you have, on the other end of Deborah, you have Samson. And his role as judge was basically to be a superhero. He used his incredible strength, and he behaved like a petulant child. And that was his reign as judge. I mean, there were some highlights, like at the end when uh, Samson has lost his superpowers. And by the way, the judges, the book of Judges doesn't explicitly say that he had his strength through his long hair, but it does imply that his long hair was part of his Nazarite vow. Uh, I don't have time to go into great details, but basically the Nazarite vow comes from the book of Leviticus. For anyone who wanted to take the same vows as priests, but who weren't eligible to become priests. So if you were uh, a non-Levite, or from one of the lesser Levite families who, who weren't eligible to become priests. You could take a Levite vow, or a Nazarite vow, and have the same strict religious adherence as the priest did. And Samson took the vow, and then one by one broke every single vow, from not touching a dead body, which he did when he ate honey out of a dead carcass of a lion, uh, to uh, sexual purity laws, which he broke about every other week during his during his quote unquote ministry, and then finally the last part of his vow was that his hair shall not be cut. And when Delilah, am I getting my characters mixed up? Is it Jezebel or Delilah? I think it's Delilah. But when Delilah cut his hair, then uh, apparently then God decided, okay, the vow is officially broken and took away his special power. And then as Samson is, he's captured by the Philistines, he's blinded, he's taken into the temple of Dagon, I believe it was Dagon, the Philistine fish god, uh, to ridicule him in front of a, a large party. Then he prays sincerely to God, Lord, give me back my power one last time, and Samson either pushes or pulls the, the, the uh, traditionally in children's Bibles it shows him like pushing the pillars out. I think it's more likely, two pillars probably wouldn't have been that close together, to push out, more likely he was chained to the pillars and he <clears throat> pulled them in like this, pulled the pillars down, the whole building collapsed, and he actually killed more Philistines in his final act than he did throughout his whole quote-unquote ministry. 
So anyway, that's a far cry from Deborah, who was a a literal judge. She judged. People came to her. She judged her things. She was an administrator, a competent administrator, who organized battles and appointed Barak as the general to go conquer. Was it Sisera? I think it was Sisera, the foreign leader. Now, the second part of Judges, the book of Judges, is Judges 17 through 21. And I call this section the atrocities section. Because it's not telling the story of leaders, the quote-unquote judges. It tells the story of two separate atrocities that happened during this time period. First of all, you've got the story of, of Micah, who's not a Levite and uh, cannot be priest, but he uh, decides to build an idol, which is big no-no, and then he sets uh, up a priest. Uh, he, he, he sets up somebody to come in and, and be a priest, and then the Danites come along and say, oh, well, we'll just steal your idol and we'll steal your priest. So the stuff Micah did was wrong. Every step of the story was sinful, and then, and then the Danites came and stole the... I mean, it was just, it's just an atrocity. Now, that story, Micah's idolatry, doesn't hold a candle to the second atrocity in the, the uh, story, and that is the story of the Benjamite War. So you have a certain uh, Jew who's traveling through Benjamite territory, and he has his concubine with him. And while he's staying in town, some Benjamites, not the whole tribe by no means, but some Benjaminites uh, take the girl and rape her so hard that she dies. So then the man who, who, the text says, owns her, so it might have been a slavery situation, takes the girl home, cuts her into 12 pieces, and sends one piece to every one of the tribes. And each of the tribes are just so furious that they gather together to go to war and, and demand that Benjamin hand over every person from that village. And Benjamin won't do it. So Benjamin and goes to fight with all of the rest of the uh, tribes of Israel. And they have a battle, and it goes poorly for both sides. Lots of Jews get killed, and lots of Benjamites get killed, and eventually the battle obviously goes the against the Benjamites just by sheer numbers. And then, uh, in, in just in the fury of battle, so many uh, Benjamites get killed that then when, when there's finally victory, the Jews are distraught because, oh no, oh no we've destroyed one of our our tribes, what are we going to do? So then some people have the bride idea. Ah, I know what we'll do. Look around your tribes and see, did anybody not show up? Did any of the villages not show up? And somebody says, oh, well, yeah, that village didn't show up. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're all going to go to that village, kill all their men, steal all their women, and give the women to the Benjamites. So every stage of that story was absolutely terrible. It was... In fact, it's really, I said there are two atrocities, Micah's idolatry and the Benjamite War. Really, the Benjamite War is more like seven or eight atrocities. It was horrible. It's a horrible story. Now, chronologically, those two stories can fit anywhere in the chronology. In fact, there are some reasons to believe that they are earlier, that they should go earlier in the book, uh, chronologically speaking. Speaking of, of a story that can go anywhere in this time period. You got the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth tells the story of David's great grandmother, who was not a Jew, but she was a Moabite. So the, the Jewish homeland uh, was, was right through here in this green area here, although Hebron and some of the southern cities were up in the highlands down here. 
Edom was basically right here, and Moab was right here, and Ammon was right here. So you've got the Moabites, basically central Jordan today. And Ruth marries into a Jewish family, and her husband dies, and so she ends up staying with her mother-in-law when her mother-in-law decides to return to, to the land of Judah. And so as a foreigner and as probably not overly young foreigner, and as a widow, she goes with no prospects of, of being able to do anything except be very poor with her uh, mother-in-law, Naomi. But she meets Boaz, who is probably an older gentleman. Uh, the book of Ruth suggests that he was a man of great uh, respect in the land, but he was... He was single, so something was he was either a widower or maybe he was a little bit weird, whatever reason. Maybe he, he just didn't, he, he, he struggled finding a girlfriend. We don't know. We just know that this very unlikely couple strike it up. Boaz and Ruth end up getting married, and Ruth ends up joining the, the tribe of Israel as a descendant not only of David, but of Jesus placing a Moabite, a foreigner, in the line of two of the most important Jews in history. Now, the story of Ruth almost certainly takes place right in the middle of Judges. Because the story of Samson butts right up against, historically speaking, right up against the beginning of 1 Samuel. So for Ruth to be David's great-grandmother, then the story of Ruth has to take place right in the middle of the book of Judges. All right, chronology. Forging along. We, now we have the book of 1 Samuel. And this introduces the character of Samuel. That sounds like a uh, no-brainer, but 2 Samuel gets weird because Samuel, the character, dies halfway through the book of 1 Samuel. Why 2 Samuel is called 2 Samuel, I have no idea. Because he's not a character in 2 Samuel. So Samuel is the last of the judges. He is also a prophet, and he's a priest. So he, like Jesus, holds all three offices. He is prophet, priest, and not necessarily king, but government official. So he holds all three offices, like Jesus is described in the New Testament as prophet, priest, and king. Through Samuel, God inaugurates the reigns of first Saul, who was a failed king, and then David, who failed quite a bit, but overall you have to consider his reign a success. Now when you get to the book of 2 Samuel, it's really all about David. Like I said, Samuel dies halfway through the book of 1 Samuel. I do not know why 2 Samuel is called 2 Samuel. And by the way, originally these books were scrolls. And 1 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings were one very big scroll. And the reason they were divided is because scrolls can get big and heavy. And so, I think, I think it might have been more helpful to call these books 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Kings. But that's just me. But 2nd Samuel follows the story of David and documents his rise as a powerful king and then his sinful issues, almost all of them sexual sins, that led to his downfall and then partial redemption. I say partial redemption because he never quite gains as much personal power as he had before his downfall with Bathsheba. 
Because once he decides to take another man's wife and then impregnate her and then try to assassinate and then successfully assassinate her husband so that to cover up his sin and then take the wife to uh, as his own. I mean, it was a very bad story. And then from that point on, David's family will no longer be stable. It'll be a family drama from that point on. Uh, a big one will be, first of all, the child through Bathsheba dies. And then his strongest son, Absalom, goes to war because David's weakest son, Amnon, Amnon, I think it was Amnon, um, falls in love with Absalom's younger sister. So it's his half-sister. So it's already not healthy. So he falls in love with the girl, and he rapes the girl. And then after he finally gets his sexual satisfaction, he decides he doesn't love the girl after all and puts her to the side, which makes Absalom justifiably very angry. And so he bides his time. A few years later, he has Amnon assassinated. And then, in order to save his skin, he runs away. But as he runs away, he gathers his allies and coalesces power and then basically marches on Jerusalem and forces David to leave. So David and his forces and Absalom and his forces have to go into a civil war. And David wins the civil war, but only at the cost of Absalom's life. Absalom is his son. He is distraught. And the, the, his distraught, uh, him being distraught over the death of his enemy then makes all of his forces question, why did we even fight for this guy? So David's reign is rocky toward the end. Nevertheless, by the very end, he does have enough control that he is able to name his own successor. And he names Solomon, his apparently youngest son, if I, if I read the text right. So he over he overlooks quite a few of his other sons to uh, inaugurate Solomon, and then so the book of First and Second Kings follows Solomon, and then after Solomon it follows all of the kings of both kingdoms. Because what happens in the uh, for, uh, after the story of Solomon, you have the story of Rehoboam. Jerusalem's right about here. See this little indention in the West Bank. That indention is so that both Palestine and Israel, the modern states of Palestine and Israel, can both have a claim to the city of Jerusalem. So the half of Jerusalem is in the West Bank, and half of Jerusalem is in Israel proper. So this is where Solomon's uh, uh, kingdom is, and Solomon is the one that builds the great temple. This is going to be important next uh, on Thursday when we talk about the second temple period, because this temple will be destroyed. Um, Solomon builds a temple, and then when Solomon dies, then uh, Rehoboam uh, takes over. And Rehoboam is a weaker king, but he had an opportunity. See, part of Solomon's strength was that he basically was, I wouldn't say slave driver, but he pushed the people hard to accomplish the great tasks of, of, of first of all, solidifying a strong empire. The uh, Empire might be too strong of a word, but making Israel as strong as it ever will be. In fact, the, the text indicates that he, his, his reign ruled all the way as far as the Euphrates River. So somewhere up around here was the extent of Israel's power during Solomon's reign. But also the great building projects, uh, a, a navy, 
that, that uh, was able to uh, uh, do trade with far-off kingdoms, the, the great temple and his palace. And none of those were cheap. They were all expensive endeavors, expanding the, the nation, building a navy, building a temple, and building a palace were all expensive. And he had to use his people, and he drove them hard. And so Jeroboam, basically the labor uh, leader, came to Rehoboam and said, please, please lower the yoke on us. We've, we've done all this great stuff. You have to let the people have some freedom. And Rehoboam goes to the elders and say, what do you say? And the elders say, Jeroboam's got a point. Let's, we've accomplished everything under Solomon. Let's, let's lower the temperature. And then Rehoboam goes to his idiot friends. And his idiot friends say, oh, no, no, no. Here's what you need to do. You, uh, my father scourged you with whips. I'm going to scourge you with scorpions, which is a dumb thing to say. I mean, it sounds tough, but really, I mean, or what are you going to do, tie scorpions to the end of whips? It's ridiculous. It's a dumb thing to say. Which just emphasizes how dumb Rehoboam was. And by not listening to the legitimate concerns of his people, Jeroboam runs off, takes ten tribes with him, and the, the kingdom gets cut right in half. The northern kingdom God gives to Jeroboam, the southern kingdom remains with Rehoboam. And basically... Rehob- uh, Judah becomes the name of the southern kingdom, and basically Judah is Judah plus Benjamin, some Levites, some Simeonites. And then the northern kingdom is everybody else. Um, and so the books of First and Second Kings then follow both kingdoms and follows the list of kings from both kings and also introduces us to the some of the first great prophets, Elijah and his protege, Elisha. The northern kingdom, by the way, has no king that is identified as good in the eyes of God. The closest is there is a king right in the middle by the name of Jehu, who is the one who assassinates... Oh, what's the name of the really bad king of the north? Um, Jezebel's um, husband, Ahab. He assassinates Ahab. Actually, it's Ahab's son, I think. He destroys the line of Ahab. He, he absolutely devastates the line of Ahab. He destroys Jezebel. He ends that dynasty. And then, by the way, he also takes out the, the, the Judan king at the time, who was also a bad king, and establishes himself in control in the north. He's God's chosen one. And then he starts idolatry all over again. So that's the closest the northern kingdom gets to a good king. The southern kingdom, Judah, has a little bit better record. It's about 50-50. About half of the kings are listed as having done right in the eyes of God, and about half of the kings are listed as having done evil in the eyes of God. Either way, that's not a good track record for either kingdom, and it leads to exile to both kingdoms. The north kingdom goes first. The northern kingdom gets conquered by Assyria, this area right here, and it gets dragged into exile. And several generations later, Babylon conquers Assyria. And so they take not only Assyria, but then they take control over the northern tribes. And then they take over the southern kingdom of Judah. That's at the very end of the book of Second Kings. And that's Nebuchadnezzar. We'll get back to Nebuchadnezzar in a bit. So let's break off a little bit and talk about where some books fit into the chronology. Where do Psalms fit? Well, Psalms is, for the most part, written by David. 
there are 150 psalms and 73, almost half, are listed as having been written by David. 48 of the psalms are anonymous, but we have reason to believe that a bunch of those are probably also written by David. So for instance, you can write these down, you don't have to look it up, but Acts 4.25 attributes Psalm 2 to David, even though it's anonymous. And Hebrews 4.7 attributes Psalm 95 to David, even though Psalm 95 is also anonymous. Twelve of the Psalms are written by Asaph, who was probably a priest. And twelve are attributed to the sons of Korah, with one of those also attributed to a guy by the name of Heman. We're not entirely sure who those people are, but they were probably contemporaries with David and Solomon. They were probably people who were writing about the same time. Speaking of Solomon, two of the Psalms are credited to him, which leaves the outliers being Moses. One of the Psalms is is said to have been written by Moses, and then a guy by the name of Ethan the Ezraite. Now, if we assume that Ethan, the Ezraite, was a descendant of Ezra, then Ethan's psalm is one of the last things written in the Old Testament. Because this would make his his song very late. It would, in fact, be closer to Jesus' time than to David's. And, in fact, several of the anonymous psalms also show the hallmarks of being post-exile or after the age of Ezra. So for instance, there's one psalm that goes, when the Lord brought back the captive ones to Zion, we were like those who sing. That's almost certainly talking about the people coming back from exile. What about Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon? Depending on your translation, it might be known as Song of Songs. Well, traditionally, they're all written by Solomon. Although we need to mention that Proverbs 30 and 31 are attributed to other people. Proverbs 30 is attributed by the name of Agur, son of Jekah. Some The sources are mixed about whether this person was real or not. Jew, many rabbinic Jewish scholars believe that Agur, son of uh, Jekah, was of poetic name for Solomon. But apparently, and I do not know much about this, so let's chalk this one up to the great perhaps, but apparently there was a an Arabian sage around a few, a, a, a few generations after Solomon by the name of Agur, son of Jekah. So it's possible that this chapter was written by a non-Jewish person. And what about chapter 31, written by King, King Lemuel? Well, Lemuel is really hard to pin down. There is no Jewish king called Lemuel. You can look throughout the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. There will be no Lemuel. So either we're talking about a Gentile king that we have no record, other record of, or this is written by Solomon or maybe Hezekiah, uh, who used a pseudonym. We don't know, but most of the book is written by Solomon. Songs or the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, is a love poem. It is an actually quite erotic love poem, written by Solomon, supposedly about one of his brides. 
And then Ecclesiastes is not attributed to Solomon, but it is attributed to the uh, son of David who is king in Jerusalem. So we're almost certainly talking about Solomon. Also, Ecclesiastes, if it is Solomon's, is a pleasant addition to the story of Solomon if you're a Christian or a Jew. Because the book of Kings doesn't end Solomon's story on a good note. The book of Kings ends Solomon's story by describing him as quite a sinful person who was eager to walk away from God. In fact, Solomon is one of the is maybe the only king, but I, I know he's one of the only kings uh, in in Kings to that that the book doesn't describe him as either good in the side of of God or evil in the side of God. It makes no judgment either way. If Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes, then it has the hallmarks of perhaps his repentance of saying, I've done a lot of crazy stuff. I've made a lot of bad decisions. Life can be full of smoke and sand and it's, it's, it's dangerous. But in the end, what really matters is to love God and to serve Him only. To fear, well, actually fear God and to serve Him only. And if that is Solomon's last word, then it is a good word. It's a good way to end Solomon's story. Okay, so First and Second Kings ends with the exile. The exile is the most important event in the Old Testament. Where the Jewish people, and by now we mean the Jewish, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, the Jewish people get taken into exile. They probably didn't cross the desert. They were probably carried along the trade routes over to Babylon. Now, does that mean that every Jew was taken into exile? No. Many Jews were left behind, mostly the poor, the downtrodden, those who were no threat to Babylon. And Jeremiah, who, for whatever reason, was not taken into exile. In fact, Jeremiah was left behind, and the remnant of the Jews in that area decided to take him to Egypt, to the Jewish people who were still living in northern Egypt, uh, against his will. But Jeremiah doesn't get taken into exile, but Daniel does. So who does get taken into exile? Well, with the exception of Jeremiah, the intelligent, the powerful, those with literally any government service, uh, probably soldiers, those with uh, who are strong or had particular skills that could be used by Babylon, were taken to Babylon as slaves. The book of Daniel, am I jumping the gun here? Yeah, a little bit. We'll talk about Jan- Daniel in a second. The exile, or the exile begins when Nebuchadnezzar II drags Judah into exile. And the exile will last just around about 70 years. When Cyrus the Great from Persia conquers uh, Babylon, and then one of Cyrus, Cyrus's best public relations uh, uh, policies, and he didn't do this just for Jews, he did this for lots of people groups, was when he would go conquer a powerful empire that had oppressed other people, he would come in and act as their liberator. And so he did this with the Jews. When he conquered Babylon, he then allowed the Jews to go back to their homeland. And he allowed the Jews to rebuild their temple. And he allowed the Jews to build a shadow of its former self. The Jewish people will not have a religious-based Jewish nation 
ever again. The Jewish people will not have a a non-religious-based Jewish nation until 1947, when the modern nation of Israel, which is a secular democracy, not a religious democracy, but a secular democracy, gets established uh, in Israel. So, Osiris allows the people to go back and rebuild as much as they can. That's the most important event, the exile, and, and going into exile, the time spent in exile, and the time left. One of the biggies about the exile is that the Jews' cultural behavior changed, does a complete 180. Before the exile, the Jews were syncretists, meaning they would synthesize, syncretize or synthesize their religious expression with other religious expressions. I'm not necessarily saying that I don't want to badmouth people, but the best example I could think of this is the Native American tribes who would see the strength of the white man and say, well, we want, we want in on it. So, that, so the missionaries would have uh, success with certain Native American tribes. But a lot of those converts would still worship the ancient ancestors and the, the, the gods of the buffaloes and the eagles and the other strong uh, religious expressions they had. They did not completely abandon their religious expression. Instead, they took the beautiful story of Jesus taught by the very powerful white man that, that, that was coming in and decided to syncretize the, the faith. So Jewish people before the exile were notorious syncretists. Throughout the Old Testament, you see stories of Jews like Ahab's entire dynasty. They would worship the gods of the neighboring nations and there would even be entire priesthoods to Baal and, and you would have the, this kind of syncretism where everybody would still have a place for Yahweh in their life, but they would worship other gods as well. After the exile, the Jews will never be known for this again. In fact, it's one of the reasons why Jews have a hard time accepting Christ because they do not want to syncretize their faith with what they see as a European Roman invention. Not necessarily an invention, but a Roman adaptation of Judaism. So the exile uh, almost completely changes Jewish culture in that way. Another way is the Jews did have their written texts before the exile. But going into exile and losing their temple really was a, a, a... jarring cultural experience and starting with those generations in exile and and the the number one name in this this change was Ezra they became a a people of scholars who copied and collated their their texts and their traditions and their oral histories and recopied them and took care of them and it's one of the reasons why the Jewish Old Testament is one of the most well-preserved ancient documents we have. Right up there with the New Testament. The New Testament's even better uh, ancient uh, preservation of a document. But the Old Testament is certainly one of the greatest preserved documents in world history because of, of the way the Jews during the exile refocused themselves towards preservation of their traditions and their texts. So what other books take place before the exile? Well, you have the prophets of Jonah, 
who is the earliest of the prophetic books. Jonah, his ministry wasn't as as early as uh, Elijah and Elisha, but Elijah and Elisha apparently didn't do any writing. Theirs was a public ministry, not a written ministry. Jonah, the book is about Jonah, but it's not entirely clear it was written by Jonah. In fact, Jonah's not really a hero in the book of Jonah. He is a petulant child who doesn't like the fact that God doesn't hate the Ninevites. Nevertheless, Jonah is, since it covers an early prophet, we're going to count it as the earliest of the prophetic books. Then you have Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, and Nahum. Those are the prophets who prophesied to the people before the exile. Then you have three that prophesied to the people around the time of the exile. That's Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. I overpronounced Zephaniah because it sounds similar to Zechariah. Also, you can throw in the book of Lamentations. Traditionally, it is understood that Lamentations was written by Jeremiah. Jeremiah was lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. Lamentations is a sad poem. It is a lament. That's why it's called that, Lamentations. Then you have the book of Daniel. Daniel is a unique book. It is written much later than the events. It's one of the newest books in the, in the Old Testament. Once again, that doesn't mean it's untrustworthy. It just means it's the, one of the newest. And it covers a character who is hard to pin down. There's not a lot of historical evidence outside of the Bible for this person known as Daniel. Nevertheless, let's go ahead and accept the story of Daniel. Daniel, the book of Daniel, the first half of the book of Daniel, covers the history of the man who was taken into exile when he was a very young man, probably an older teenager. He was of the royal line, but not in any... He he was maybe like a cousin or a nephew or something. He wasn't going to be king. But he was in that family... He was taken into exile where he was turned into a scholar for Babylon and a prophet of God. The book telescopes the history focusing on the beginning of Daniel's ministry and the end. The beginning of the book focuses on Daniel's relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. And then it changes to his relationship with Belshazzar and then the governor known as Darius, Darius the Mede. Now, the Belshazzar story and Darius the Mede, or uh, the writing on the wall in Daniel and the lion's den is probably how you know those stories. Those are at the end of Daniel's life. And the first four books of Daniel are when he's very young, or Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Most people think that the book of Daniel teaches that Nebuchadnezzar's son was Belshazzar, but he was not. When the book of Daniel mentions Belshazzar as Nebuchadnezzar's son, that is an honorific. That is a way of referring to somebody by their most powerful predecessor. Because Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful of the Neo-Babylonian emperors. I told you earlier that the Neo-Babylonian empire was short-lived. I'm going to show you just how short-lived. Now this graphic I found online. There's one other king here that should be on the list, but he's over here. It didn't make the picture. His name is Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar 
It's unfortunate he didn't make the list because he's the second strongest king. His son, Nebuchadnezzar II, is the strongest king. But Nabopolassar is the one who led the rebellion against Assyria, destroyed Nineveh, and established the Neo-Babylonian Empire. His son then reigns for, if I'm doing my math right, 38 plus 5, so 43, 44 years, somewhere in that range. Nebuchadnezzar II, if you were to create a Mount Rushmore of history's greatest conquerors, Nebuchadnezzar II would be on that mountain, right up with probably Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan of history's greatest conquerors. He conquered a lot, and if I remember right, never really lost a battle. He was a very powerful king. Now, the book of Daniel tells a story that, if true, was scrubbed from the official uh, history of, of Babylon. And that is, he goes crazy and for a time spends time out in the wilderness, basically just nuts as, as, as a beast in the field, eating grass and, I don't know, scratching himself and going nuts. Uh, like I said, if this is true, then it was completely scrubbed from the Babylonian history. And why wouldn't it be? Because Nebuchadnezzar doesn't die crazy. And certainly anybody who recorded this period of his life, he would probably have had those histories destroyed, if Daniel is to be believed. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is succeeded by his son, Amal Marduk. And the next kings are weak. By the way, Marduk is the name of a Babylonian god. Uh, in fact, a name of the Babylonian god, Nabo, Marduk... There's a Babylonian god in each of these names, which is not uncommon. It was it was not uncommon. Like Elijah, the L is is the Hebrew word for God. So you you would see the uh, the name of God mixed into names. Now, if you're wondering, like, oh, you know, well, you're just making this stuff up, or oh, I believe the Bible. I I don't believe this Wikipedia history stuff. I believe the Bible. Well, write this down, because Amal Marduk actually makes an appearance in the Bible. In 2 Kings 25, verse 27, the, the Hebrew transliteration makes it out as evil Merodach, but it's the same person. Evil, or I, I, I prefer to pronounce it Evel, just to make sure it. I don't want people to think that evil was a description. He might have been evil, but... Where in Kings is that? 2 Kings 25, 27. We see Nebuchadnezzar's successor was Evel Merodach, or Amel Marduk. And then following him were two weak kings, Neriglasar and Labishi Marduk, who are not really worth mentioning except that they were also kings. And then they get followed by Nabonidus. Now Nabonidus was not a relative of Nebuchadnezzar. He's not in the same family. He was a general who takes over. He takes control. Nabonidus was an interesting fellow. He came from a different religious tradition. And at a certain point, he decides to up and just leave the city. He goes and lives in a monastery out in the wilderness and leaves his son, Belshazzar, in control as a regent, as a regent king. Belshazzar is never actually the king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. He's the regent. And so when you get to the story of the writing on the wall, and Belshazzar's throwing one of his keggers, and, and God writes on the wall, and Belshazzar asks if there's any wise man in the nation who can tr- interpret this, and somebody says, 
There's an old guy named Daniel who used to do this stuff for Nebuchadnezzar like decades ago. Let's see if he can do it. So they pull Daniel, probably out of retirement, we don't know. But they pull Daniel in and Daniel says, yes, I know what that says and you're not going to like it. God's going to destroy your kingdom very soon. And Belshazzar, who apparently wasn't listening or was of high enough character that he decided to reward Daniel even though he didn't like the message, then it elevates Daniel to third in the kingdom, which kind of stands out and it's such a weird thing to say. If Belshazzar is number one, why would he elevate Daniel to number three? Who's number two? Until you know the actual history behind it. And now we know why Belshazzar elevated Daniel to number three. Because he was number two. Belshazzar was number two. His father, who was off doing his religious monk thing, was number one. And so Daniel, in effect, becomes the prime minister of Babylon. And just in time for Cyrus the Great to march into town and conquer the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And... Belshazzar dies in, in the uh, sack of the city. Nabonidus dies shortly after in battle against Cyrus the Great. And the Babylonian Empire is kaput. It's gone. Now Babylon is a vassal state of Persia. Where's my map? So once again, Persia, it's easiest for us to think of Persia as Iran, to think of Babylon as Iraq, and to think of Syria, Assyria as Syria and northern Iraq. Now Babylon is a vassal state of Persia, and Cyrus lets the Jews go home. But for whatever reason, he doesn't let Daniel go home. Probably because when Cyrus marches into town, Daniel's the one that's in charge. He's the highest one left. Nabonidus dies in battle, and Belshazzar dies when the city is sacked. So Daniel is the, 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 the closest thing Cyrus has to a Babylonian to, to uh, be part of the structure. Cyrus apparently, there's not a whole lot of history to establish this, but it, just looking at the book of Daniel, there's a character by the name of Darius the Mede who's placed in charge of Babylon. Probably an uncle or something of, of Cyrus, or at very least, he is a royal official that Cyrus puts in charge there, and Cyrus goes to his capital up in Persia, where he's from. Some people preach that this is Darius the Great. There's over 150 years separating Cyrus from Darius. So they're different people. There's a reason why the book of Daniel clarifies that this is Darius the Mede. Because he, this Darius is from the minority people group in the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius the Great, the emperor, is not from the, Mede, the Median people. He is, he is from a Persian people. Okay, so... With the book of Daniel closing, we're now in the post-exilic period, or after the exile. Which books take place during this time? Well, I put Joel here, but we have to be careful. Because of all the books in the Old Testament, Joel is the hardest to pin down. We have no evidence of a person named Joel existing anywhere in the Bible, except the book of Joel. We're not entirely sure... Uh, where to pin him down. But there's some reason to believe that he is post-exile. So, Joel, Obadiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the prophetic books that take place after the exile. But the most important books after the exile are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those lay out the history 
that help bridge the gap between the end of the exile and the end of the Old Testament. Ezra tells the story of the first generations of Jews to come back to Jerusalem and their attempts to set things up again. Ezra comes in the second, third, or fourth wave of Jews to to arrive, and he establishes kind of a religious authority, and he is a great scholar. Ezra, almost certainly not single-handedly, he was probably the leader of a whole class of scholars. Uh, Ezra is one of the reasons why we have an Old Testament. And then Nehemiah tells the story of the Persian cupbearer who the Persian emperor allows to go back and act as governor over his people, Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah comes, and through adversity, all the neighbors want to destroy the Jewish peoples, and through adversity, he successfully establishes Jerusalem as a safe Jewish city with walls and a temple. Although the temple was so small that the people who were old enough to remember Solomon's temple wept. The people who were too young to know any better thought it was great. It's a great temple. The temple would then be, it's still the second temple, but uh, Herod the Great, who is the one who tried to have Jesus killed as a baby, uh, has a grand remodeling job on the, on the second temple. And so the temple that Jesus does his ministry in and around uh, is almost as big, or maybe even bigger, but it, it, it starts to match the grandeur of Solomon's temple. But the temple, as it was originally reconstructed, was, was a, a shadow of its former self. And then Esther kind of is a standout. First of all, both Esther and Malachi are the latest books in the Old Testament. I like to joke, I like to joke with people that if, uh, if you were to say, how many fingers do you have on your hand, and you went, 1, 90, 147, 6, 5. I've got five fingers on my hand. I came to the wrong, right answer, but for the wrong reasons. So Malachi is the last book in the Bible, uh, but that doesn't mean that each of the, those books go in order. They don't. They're just kind of hodgepodge. But Malachi has a rival for the, old, new, the newest book in the Old Testament because Esther covers a time frame that's about the same. Both Malachi and Esther are more than a generation after the exile. So we're talking... These are talking to people. Malachi is is actually preaching to people who are more than a generation after they came back. And Esther actually covers the people who never came back. So somewhere around, if I'm guessing, I think it's right about here, was a city called Susa, or known as the Citadel of Susa. It was a strong city. And it was the heart of the Persian Empire. That's where Cyrus ruled from. So Cyrus, he took over back... Uh, Babylon and Babylon's a grand city, but Susa's better. So Cyrus went home and left his perhaps uncle. We don't know. He left a royal official by the name of Darius the Mede in charge in Babylon. So in Susa, the uh, a series of kings reigns, and eventually you have a guy by the name of Xerxes. And Xerxes rules over a city that has Jews in it, namely Mordecai and his family. And in that family is Hadessa, also known by her uh, Persian name, Esther. And the story of Esther, by the way, would make a great Hollywood movie. You've got Xerxes throws a big party, and uh, he and his officials get uh, drunk, and he says, I want my wife to come in wearing her crown. 
just the crown. The, the, the text doesn't say just the crown, but that's the implication. You as the reader are supposed to catch that. It's, it's, a, it's a, a wink and a nod, as you were, without actually having to come out and say it. Uh, which explains why Vashti refused. Because if the king just wanted to bring his wife in to show to his friends wearing her beautiful crown, she wouldn't refuse. But the idea she was be wearing her crown, hint, hint, just the crown, um, she refused to do it. Uh, which put Xerxes in a bad place once he sobered up a bit. Because he's got a wife that he apparently loves. And he doesn't want to kill her, but she disobeyed the emperor. You can't do that. So he asks his, his court, what should he do? Somebody in the court says, just set her aside. You don't have to kill her. Just take away her power. And he's like, okay, we'll do that. And then that leaves him a new problem. Now he has no queen. So he has a beauty contest. And they bring in a handful of women that go through a process of beautification. They get their diets changed. They have the makeups. They probably do some exercises, whatever they need to do to beautify themselves up a bit. And then... Text is unclear about this, but it seems like they have kind of a reality show kind of dating that may or may not have been, had a sexual component involved. And Xerxes chooses his next queen, who just happens to be Esther. He doesn't know Esther's Jewish. Esther doesn't parade around the fact that she's part of the Jewish minority. Mordecai, who everybody does know is Judah, Jewish, is reasonably powerful, is part of Artaxerxes' court, doesn't apparently hold a high position in court, but he's part of the court. And Mordecai tells his niece, I think it's niece, maybe cousin, tells his relative, his younger relative, don't advertise the fact you're Jewish. Just do what you got to do. She gets chosen as queen. All is great in the world. Esther gets to be rich. Except there's a guy by the name of Haman. And Haman comes from a people group that Jewish tradition says is related to the Amalekites who were an ancient peoples who tried to kill the Jews at every step of the way. So the Jewish tradition says that this person who is, is descended from the Amalekites uses his position to try to get himself into position because, for one thing, he hates Mordecai. And Mordecai's a Jew, so he hates all the Jewish people. And he wants to slaughter the Jewish people. And he, he manipulates Xerxes into writing a law that says that, that, that they can wipe out the Jews. And Xerxes must be a moron because he goes along with it. Uh, Esther finds out, um, or actually Mordecai finds out, tells Esther. Esther decides to pray for three days, and then she's going to go before the king and make her, her appeal, which is dangerous, because if the emperor doesn't want to see you, he, the emperor calls you. You don't go visit the king, the emperor. The emperor calls you. So if she goes to the emperor, and the emperor is offended by this, how dare you come to me? I, I call you. You don't come to me. She could die. So she decides, but i got to do it. I've got to stand up for my people. So she does. And the emperor says, Oh, hey, it's my beautiful wife. Come in. So they have a, a conversation, and Esther doesn't jump right to the point. She says, let's, let's, let's have a dinner party, just me, you, and Haman. And so now Haman, who doesn't know Esther's Jewish, is like, Great. I've got... I've, not only do I have the king on my side, now I've got the queen on my side. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and build a gallows dozens of feet high in front of my house to hang Mordecai from because I hate this guy. And I'm going to get the king and queen to allow me to kill my, my rival right in front of my house. It's going to be great. 
And so Haman shows up. Uh, Esther surprises everyone, says, I'm a Jew. This guy's going to kill my people. Uh, we need to put an end to this. And the king is upset that he was manipulated by Haman into killing the Jews. And he's uh, this is going to be a bad public relations thing. I, I, I can't handle this. The king leaves the room, and Haman decides to plead for my life. Plead, Queen Esther, don't don't do this to me. And then Xerxes decides to come back just as it's happening. I don't know, from whatever angle he's looking at, it looks like Haman's trying to proposition his, his, his uh, queen. Xerxes loses his temper and has Haman hung from the gallows that he had built in front of his house. So then, apparently, I don't know, maybe Xerxes already stamped the royal decrees to have uh, all the Jews in the emperor, empire killed, and it's too late to retract all these, these rules. So instead of saying, we're not going to have a, a, a slaughter of the Jews anymore, he makes new decrees that the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. So at a certain day, a, a battle breaks, street battles break out, and the Jews, for the most part, successfully defend themselves, kill a lot of their enemies, and that's the book of Esther. Uh, wasn't there a rule or a law that he could not change his mind. That's implied in the book of Daniel. But my take on that is that Darius the Mede couldn't change the royal decree because he wasn't the emperor. He would had to have sent... Uh, so, so what Darius the Mede got manipulated just like Xerxes got manipulated by Daniel's enemies. And so Daniel got thrown into the lion's den because... Darius couldn't change the rule. Darius would have had to send somebody to Susa, get the emperor to hear them that day, which was unlikely, get the royal uh, decree changed, come back to Babylon. That'd be several. That'd be a, several weeks. And Daniel was already in. It was going in the lion's den that night. So that that's the the problem. And of course, after Daniel survives the lion's den, Darius decides that he's going to throw caution to the wind and changes the royal decree. He should have done it the night before, but after Daniel survives the lion's den, he decides maybe Daniel's God is powerful and I'm just going to go with my gut on this one. So let's close with some themes. What are, the, what are the major themes of the Old Testament? Well, most of the themes, uh, or most of the Old Testament is written in the prophetic voice. There were three institutions of power in ancient Israel. There were priests... They were founded by Aaron during the Exodus and Aaron's family. And then you had to be one of Aaron's descendants to be in the priests. The priests were the most official branch of power. They were the most recognizable branch of power. and they were, But they were religious and ceremonial. They didn't technically hold government power. Then you had the government powers. That would include Moses and Joshua and the judges and then finally the kings who were the ultimate expression of government power. But then after the kings, you had the governors, people like Nehemiah. You would uh, have uh, people like, eventually, Herod the Great, who had a, a, a title of king, but it was really just an honorific that the Romans allowed him to have. He wasn't really a king. And then you have the prophets. And the prophets were the least organized center of power, and, but they were the most charismatic. Their power came from their ability to communicate directly with the people and if you believe in the Holy Spirit, their ability to speak directly for God. More often than not, prophets were opposed in their own time. But it ends up becoming the prophetic voice that drives the Old Testament. All of the prophetic books are uh, either written by the prophets or about the prophets and therefore have the prophetic voice. 
But even much of the other, the, the books of Samuel and Kings carry the prophetic voice. Even though they're about government officials, they're often very critical of government officials. Most of the Old Testament, like I said, is told through the prophetic voice. The biggest exceptions are Leviticus, which is told through the priestly voice, and then the, uh, a lot of the Psalms, which is told through uh, a kingly voice, through David or through Solomon or through Moses, who wasn't a king, but he was the embodiment of, of the government. This, by the way, because the Old Testament carries a prophetic voice, it is not afraid to be critical of Jewish culture and Jewish sins. Even though it's generally pro-Jewish, it's not afraid to be critical of the, of the Jewish culture when it, when it sins. And, finally, the theme of the Old Testament is monotheism, that there is one God. Now, we have to be careful with our terms. So, the good example of polytheism would be the Greeks, with Zeus and Hercules and Hera and Apollo, etc., etc., etc. The Greek religion was classic polytheism. But most of those gods really didn't carry any similarities to Yahweh who was all-powerful, all-wise. The, the gods of the Greeks were petty, and, and they were powerful enough, but they, they, were, they got in squabbles, and they didn't know everything, and they weren't always wise. They were very different. Judaism and Christianity, or Judeo-Christianity, actually makes room for non-omnipotent supernatural beings. So God isn't the only supernatural being we, we acknowledge. You have angels... You have demons, you have Satan, you have the four living creatures who make appearances in, like, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Revelation. You have the cherubim and the seraphim who aren't angels. They're different things. Most people think cherubs are angels, but they're not. They're different things. Uh, And you even have gods of the other nations. Now, the Bible doesn't acknowledge all of these gods as real, but it does seem to acknowledge that there's something going on there. Either these gods are demons, some of them just don't exist, but these other gods are demons or some other similar deceptive element, or they exist but they're unworthy of our worship. Now if you're interested in learning more about that concept of the Old Testament's use of other nations' gods, I would recommend this book, The Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser. If you want to look in the Bible, the best case is it's what's called the Divine Council. And those are scenes where God holds a court. And He asks other supernatural beings, which are almost always unnamed supernatural beings, for advice. Now, God doesn't need advice, but He asks for it. And good examples of that would be Psalm 82 and Deuteronomy 32. And finally, let's look at some recurring themes. Some recurring themes in the, in the Old Testament are creation. Creation is obviously a big theme in Genesis chapter 1, but the words to describe creation are used frequently throughout the, New, uh, the Old Testament every time God does something great, or when God creates the Jewish nation, or when uh, God creates the prophetic office, or the priestly office. It, the, the idea of creation, of God doing new things in history. You have the theme of covenants, of God making promises, making and keeping promises with His people. The theme of deliverance. Frequently, God delivers His people from 
bad rulers, from plagues, and in two big examples, from slavery in Egypt and from exile in Babylon. You see a recurring theme of judgment, that while God is a God of love and mercy, that He judges evil and He judges sin. And the final recurring theme in the Old Testament, which becomes stronger as you get later in the Old Testament, is a coming deliverer or a Messiah. The best example of that is Isaiah 53. So that's your homework if you choose to accept it, to read Isaiah 53 and to ponder it. Well, hello, friends and family. Before I give a, a, a closing music ending for this podcast, there are a few things I need to add to this lecture. First of all, I made an error when I talked about the Persian kings. I said that there was 150 years between Cyrus and Darius. There is 150 years, or a little less than 150 years, between Cyrus and Darius II. But the Darius I was referring to at the time, there's actually only two generations separating Cyrus the Great from Darius the Great. So I wanted to make that clear. Secondly, I, as I further studied for the lecture on Thursday night, which that podcast will be coming out shortly, I realized that I had made a significant error with the timing of Esther by assuming that the emperor in Esther named Ahasuerus in the Bible was Artaxerxes. I assumed, I think I assumed that because they both start with an A. But most scholars that I've read recently believe that the emperor in the book of Esther is supposed to be Xerxes I. Therefore, when I said that Esther is one of the last books chronologically in the story, it's actually not. There's a handful of books, uh, including Nehemiah and Malachi, that should be dated clearly after Esther, chronologically speaking. But finally, there was a great oversight I left off in this lecture. Uh, I left out a discussion of two books, and that is First and Second Chronicles. Uh, I don't have a lot to add about First and Second Chronicles because almost everything in First and Second Chronicles is actually covered in Second uh, Samuel, First Kings, and Second Kings. So why does the Bible include First and Second Chronicles then, if that uh, material is already being covered? First and Second Chronicles is told at a much later date. It's still covering, chronologically, it's covering that early period of time. But, for instance, in, in the Jewish Bible, the way that the Jews organized uh, what we call the Old Testament, they actually end with First and Second Chronicles. It's, it's the last books in most organizations of the Jewish Old Testament. The reason is because the purpose that First and Second Chronicles seems to serve is that it is trying to preserve the history of Judah for the generations that are getting ready to rebuild Judah. And so, for instance, First and Second Chronicles does not bother telling hardly anything about the northern kingdom of Israel. So as you follow the king list, it leaves off almost all of the northern kings. Almost all of the focus, therefore, is on the kings of Judah, including David and Solomon, and the, the death scene for Saul. But, but really, First Chronicles picks up with David after, by the way, nine whole chapters of genealogies, which is just exciting to read when you're going through a Bible in the year plan. Uh, and then it, it really solidifies the important points of 
the history of the kingdom of Judah for the Jews that are returning back from exile. So with that, I'm going to close this podcast and let you guys go for today. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Collar Scholar. And the next episode, which was recorded recently, will uh, I'll edit it and I shall get it out sometime this weekend. Thank you, friends and family. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Collar Scholar. We hope you have enjoyed this production of the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrites at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The purpose of this podcast is to educate use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.